uh, Wall Street Democrats that are aligned with years of protecting corporate interest over people's interest. That has been Cuomo's ideology for as long as we know. And then a two weeks goes by and we are seeing mistake after mistake after mistake and it all culminated in a very deadly executive order that he ordered, his people ordered, to suppress the data. Does the future look bright or does the future look scary? As long as we have collaborative politicians who can see the world as a win-win, Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, we all have the same goal, which is to reward hard work. That's all we want. Like We want people to feel, understand that if they put in the time and effort, that they have upward mobility. Public servants should create a world of win-win, where it's not winner-take-all economics. And, and as long as we can find that balance, I do feel very optimistic we can get to a better place very soon. My guest today is Ron Kim. He is New York State Assembly representing the 40th District since November of 2012. And recently, if you, if you turn on the TV, if you're watching videos, you have seen his face, you have seen his name on the view all over the place because of a uh, controversy that came out on a uh, uh, call uh, that he and uh, Andrew Cuomo, Governor Andrew Cuomo had that's led to a lot of different uh, issues being brought up. So with that being said, Ron Kim, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you for the invite and having me on your show. Yes, I'm, uh, I've been looking forward to this. So, you know, let's get right into it. You know, you're seeing uh, uh, Andrew Cuomo one minute. We're watching him on a daily basis. Every day I turn on the TV, I see his face more than Trump during COVID. The live conferences that was taking place, he would address the questions. He won an Emmy for it. Then you would see the back and forth with him and his brother. You, you almost thought maybe one day there would be a TV show, the, the Cuomo brothers, you know, that we'd be watching. And uh, talks came about him handling coronavirus better than Donald Trump, President Donald Trump at the time. And then talks came about him potentially running for office in the future for being a president, a Democratic candidate. And then there came the, the, the fall, the controversy that came out. How, how, how did this lead to what it is today? Well, for a long time, uh, while Andrew Cuomo was making the national circuits, and you forgot he also wrote a book on COVID leadership at the same time, Many of us, including the families who were losing the lost uh, loved ones, uh, lawmakers, community activists, we were on the ground seeing the impact of his bad decisions and policies. So while he was on CNN, we were crying on the floor, on the ground, saying, hey, your decisions are completely isolating our older adults. You're not doing your job. Uh, you are not allowing us to see our loved ones. Uh, we can't get their medical records. You're giving a corporate legal shield for your top nursing home executives at the worst time, which will lead to more deaths. These are the type of things we kept pushing out. We didn't have a platform. He is arguably at the time, one of the most powerful, if not one of the, the most powerful Democrat in, in, in America with the brother, as you said, Patrick, who's on national TV every single night. So yes, many of us did feel we we're getting gaslit, right? Because we see the truth, we turn on TV and they're telling us a whole different narrative that he is a hero when we knew that he was making mistakes. We were trying to hold him accountable every step of the way. When did you guys know that these events were taking place? Meaning, was there ever a 
Because, you know, before a crisis takes place, you kind of see somebody leading towards potential trends. You say, that's not looking right. When did you guys start noticing trends? Yeah, so I'll go back to the timeline. When the governor and his top health official came to us early March, this is after COVID landed in New York City and people were starting to get scared. He asked for us an emergency $40 million and extraordinary powers. Many of my progressive Democrats, they were like, no, we can't trust this guy. Don't give him any more powers. I actually sponsored that bill. I was the main co-sponsor and argued against the Democrats. My constituents are scared. I don't think Washington is going to help us in this hour. So let's, give, let's get behind this government. Let's give him a chance to lead. And then a week goes by. And then a two weeks goes by. And we are seeing mistake after mistake after mistake. And it all culminated in a very deadly executive order with a unilateral decision on March 25th, which he ordered, uh, which is an order where he ordered 9,000 COVID patients in the period of 47 days back to unprepared nursing home facilities, March 25th. Come April 2nd into our state budget when no one was paying attention when he knew the lawmakers were looking at the other, other laws and budget items, he bullied a toxic poison bill that would give the same facilities, what we call a get out of jail free card. They can't be criminally liable or can't be sued for taking in all these COVID positives and transmitting COVID. We saw it, we called him out and that's when we started to push back. So it's okay, you know what? You, you, you might've made a mistake, governor. We understand you're talking to you know these all these special interest groups and people who have only their businesses in mind, but this is not about protecting the profits. Right now, people are dying, and we need to hold them accountable to make sure that these for-profit nursing homes are spending every dollar that they have to try to save lives. You're not doing that. So we kept pushing back, and all of a sudden, Patrick, the numbers went away. <laughs> he publishes a report in July that decoupled the nursing home death numbers, meaning he stopped counting. Uh, he, uh, the, the, the healthcare experts told him, you need to count the hospital deaths. So if, I, if my mother passed away in a nursing home, uh, but she was transferred to a hospital and she died in a hospital, that fatality should be part of the entire data set. So we can take, lawmakers can take a look at it and offer solutions. He decoupled it and published a report. And all of a sudden he goes out and says, New York isn't that bad. We're number 40 in the country. Uh, I'm actually going to write a book uh, about COVID leadership. And he publishes it in October. All that time period, we're pushing back, release the entire data so we can legislate, so we can actually fix the problems that you caused. That is the timeline. And, and, all, and I, as you know, it blew up recently because his administration admitted to the cover-up in a private meeting. And then the New York Times and Wall Street Journal came out recently, said there was even more cover-up leading back to that original report in July that they published mm. that he ordered, his people ordered to suppress the data so he could go out on national TV and continue to be heroic at a time when we needed honesty, transparency, and accountability to save people's lives. Now, what uh, what could have been different? Say, if we would have come out, what would have been the right approach to take in a, a situation like this? Well, the, the laws that we're passing now, we just we we just passed about nineteen bills, having all the data in front of us, which is hold the 
nursing homes accountable, uh, mandate, especially the for-profit ones. So in New York State, it's about 63% of nursing home facilities are for-profits. Um, the rest are state-owned, state-run, or nonprofit organizations. Got it. The for-profits has had a long history of undercutting staff, cutting corners to maximize profits, as you can imagine. Um, so we wanted to hold, we could have hold, held them accountable. We could have said, well, for example, you're getting $100 today of Medicare, Medicaid. Out of the $100, we're going to direct you to spend 80% of that in direct care, which is the right standard during an emergency. But they were spending, you know, on average, 25, 30% on direct care, meaning not hiring enough staff, not putting enough PPE in place. All those things we could have mandated early on, but instead, the governor went the other direction and decided to give the corporate um, shareholders and people behind the businesses a a more or less a blanket corporate immunity. So they don't need to worry about getting sued or being criminally charged. So, so Ron, now today, after the 19 bills have been passed, if I'm running a nursing home today, 60 plus percent of nursing homes are for profit. The other 30 some percent are nonprofit. If I'm running a for profit, I have to spend 80 percent on direct care now. So meaning I'm only keeping 20 percent of money that's coming to me. Is that what I'm is that what the law states today or so not yet? So that bill is still being negotiated. That particular bill, we're starting at 70 percent. And then over the next couple, couple of years, we're trying to get up to 90 percent of direct care. I mean, um, that's going to that's going to also force a lot of people out of the business. Right. Isn't that going to force a lot of people out? And they're going to say, you know what, Ron, you're right. I'm just I can't run margins on 10 percent. I'm, I'm out of the business myself. Sure, Patrick. And those are tough and uncomfortable conversations to be had. Should prof, should for-profit models intersect in the care sector, especially dealing with the elderly population? Is that the best model? When, when the business model itself is designed to extract as much profit out yeah. of Medicare, Medicaid uh, instruments, or do we need better uh, mechanisms? You know, my dad, my dad was, uh, when he had, he's had 13 heart attacks. My dad, when he went to uh, a uh, hospital and it was a government funded hospital in Norwalk, California. And when I went to pick him up, they were just treating him like he was just a piece of meat, you know, laying there and I lost it and they kicked me out. Security came, you need to leave this place. And the lady made a very interesting comment at the end. I said, my dad's been pressing a button. No one's going over there to take care of him. What is this all about? And she said, listen, you're not paying for this. This is taxpayer money. Okay. And I was 23 years. That's one of, one of the motivations why I maybe want to get to work and make the money because I never wanted to hear that statement mm. to have the choice for profit because my experience has been the customer service for profit is a million times better than a nonprofit. If I go to DMV in LA and I'll let you say I go to DMV in Glen Oaks in Burbank, which I've been to many times for the driving record that I have, I kind of have a reason to go there quite often. When I would go there and they would talk to you like, stand over there. Wait in line. Didn't I tell you to stand over there? I'm like, oh my gosh, they didn't talk to me like this in the military. And they don't care about Yelp. They don't care about the, you know, customer service. They don't care about, hey, can you write a five-star review on Yelp for us? Because it'd be, we would so much appreciate it. No one's getting fired because it's a nonprofit. And so for me, sometimes 
pushing corporations out can also backfire on the city and not only the city, the people, because competition is a healthy thing. So that's, that's a complete different conversation. When you said 90%, sure. it mean, kind of triggered the business side of mine. Keep in mind, when Donald Trump got COVID, he didn't go to a for-profit hospital. He went to a government-run hospital. Um, when we talk about, I know, and I know, and I read, and I'm familiar with your background. I respect, um, as an immigrant, uh, how, what you uh, overcame as an entrepreneur and, and really was driven. I have so much respect for your background, Patrick. Um, but I think we live in a generation, I think we're about the same, I'm 41 years old. Um, and I came in an era where private capital was unleashed in the 1980s after Ronald Reagan. We went in a different way. Before that, you know, we had a tight grip on checking monopolies and making sure that the smaller local economies had a fair share. And the tax rates are much different before Ronald Reagan. Um, uh, this is all stuff that you're familiar with. But no we made a conscious choice to go in a different direction, meaning we, we surgically undermined the public sector every other year, under-resourced, underfunded, um, different, different components, where and, and localities sold off public services in piecemeal over the last 40 years. Um, backing your, your argument that you know, market-driven solutions, uh, accountability, uh, customer-driven is a better model for public service. But every, if you look at the long history of when we achieved the, the greatest level of entrepreneurs, innovation is when we, when government actually invested in public capital and we were able, whether, whether if, if you look at Apple, Siri would not have come if we did not have Sputnik, when we had massive capital, public capital investment to drive innovation. And out of that may come different types of private markets. Um, but I believe there is a stronger role for the public sector uh, to reinvest um, without completely you know, being combative with the work that you've accomplished and other entrepreneurs in the private sector. But right now, I think the balance has, is, is way off uh, in favoring uh, the for-profit industries in spaces like care work when we should be investing public dollars. But this is it. We can we can have a whole different uh, back and forth. And but I appreciate this type of discussion because I do I do have a tremendous amount of respect uh, for your expertise. Um, I mean, in this topic, I don't want to go detail on ninety yeah. percent. The only thing is, when I think about a small business, and you're not uh, it, there is no incentive for it. You're just pushing a guy out, and he's like, "Listen, the hell with this. I'm just leaving a business model, and I'm going to go to a different place." But we'll come back to this because I do want to come back to Amazon. And I know you were one of the first that uh, uh, talked about Amazon when they were coming down, you, you know, in the 25,000 jobs at 150. But let's let's stay on the Cuomo issue here. Um, you know, uh, it almost seems like what's happening to the Republican Party is happening to the Democratic Party. And let me kind of paint this picture to you. And, and you tell me if you agree with this or not. On the Republican Party, you know, you saw uh, 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 what do you call it? You saw. Uh, Trump's going and running and, you know, there was a camp. I was like, oh, my gosh, if I support him, I may. What if the midterms and what if I'm not going to get people in the media? They're going to say I'm MAGA and I'm going to get this and this and that. And so so then they came Lincoln uh, Project. Right. So the Lincoln Project, the McCain's, the Bushes, you know, that area. And they came out and they they play a very, very maybe more of a big role than anybody else did in making sure Trump doesn't get reelected. The Lincoln Project did. And then there was division there, right? So then now you have MAGA and you got old Republican, new Republican. That's kind of what's going on over there. Still got 75 million votes, but not enough. 74 million votes, not enough to get elected. 
on the Democratic side, you're seeing also two camps. You're seeing the Pelosi camp. You're seeing, uh, uh, you know, the Newsom camp. You're seeing Schumer camp. And then you're seeing AOC camp. You're seeing Sanders camp. There's also like two camps. I will give credit to Democrats. They are 10 times more united than Republicans are. I mean, it's not even close how much more Democrats are united than Republicans are. They're not even in the same league. Um, Democrats will at least say we may disagree, but look in front of the camera, let's all be on the same page and then let's fight it out behind closed doors and figure something out here. Are you seeing like a division taking place in the Democratic Party today with two different philosophies? One more, you know, the new wave of socialism, raising taxes, higher regulation. And the other one is more like John F. Kennedy Democrats was like, listen, guys, let's still stay, understand we need Wall Street's money because we're raising money and we're doing all this stuff so we can just turn our backs against them. What are you noticing happening down the Democratic Party? Yeah, I mean, that dynamics has gone back many, many years in America, where at some point, the Republicans all represented the working class values and then the Democrats. But what's clear is that New York Democrat and Wall Street Democrats has had a long history of creating tensions between the rest of America. Um, and what AOC did say a couple of years ago does resonate with me, which is this is this should not be about left versus right, but for the bottom versus the top. And when we look at the fight around nursing home, protecting these most vulnerable members of nursing home residents, when you look at the people who are with me and with us in pushing back against Cuomo, it's a combination of conservative Republicans from the right and socialists on the left and on progressives on the left. The people that are missing in this fight have been the people who are stuck in the middle, um, the, the establishment, if you will, uh, the corporate driven Democrats, uh, Wall Street Democrats that are aligned with years of protecting corporate interest over uh, people's interest. Um, that, is, that has been Cuomo's ideology for as long as we know, you know, we, 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 call, it, we call it uh, neoliberalism and the uh, corporate Democrats, you know, there's different ways to describe it. Um, but it culminates again in austerity minded budgets where we're constantly either flatlining social programs for decades, while we subsidize, as you mentioned, you, you mentioned Amazon briefly, uh, we think the bigger, better corporations are best and bringing in new jobs and creating innovation. So we try to subsidize through taxpayers' tax credits as much of that and those type of industries to come in to fuel uh, economic growth. That's been the philosophy of Como uh, and many of the, the middle grounded Democrats that are aligned with them. So it's not necessarily tensions. Um, there's internal, I think, uh, differences of how some of the next generation of Democrats want to lead uh, the party into prioritizing the needs of the, our most vulnerable and center the solutions around people's needs uh, in the ground. And I, we're not talking about any complicated things. We're talking about housing, education, healthcare, basic human need, needs that must be met. Um, otherwise, we, what we end up doing is individualizing everything and saying, you're not, you're not successful because you're not working hard enough and you're, it's a character flaw, and we're just going to throw carrots and st mostly sticks with over policing, and we're gonna we're gonna fund more police to go into your neighborhood and teach you some character. I mean, that's really how many of our moderate corporate Democrats get their hands off of the situation. 
because it is very difficult to go back and say, we're going to improve the social conditions. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hi, Hazel. How you doing, baby? Oma? That is so great. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> Can you close the door, baby? Thank you. Sorry about that. It's a beautiful daughter you got there, Hazel. But go ahead. You were saying. So, yeah. So I believe uh, that there is a philosophical uh, divide that's brewing in the party, but it's not an unhealthy one. It's a necessary one that I think both parties um, should be having moving forward. Yeah, it's it's to me, it's my dad told me, he said, one thing about America, you got to know, Pat, he says, uh, you know, it's very America is very good at taking you from zero to hero overnight. You're just like everybody knows you. But America is also very good at taking you from hero to zero overnight. You know, one minute you're winning Emmys and you're just better than Trump and you're going at it with Trump and yay, Cuomo, go bully the bully. And then next minute, no, 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 we got to take this guy out. And, uh, you know, now he's uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, going through, whether it's impeachment or being asked to resign. I've seen all the interviews, whether you've done with uh, CNN or uh, uh, Hale, I've seen all of them, what you said, and with the phone call that happened with you and him. So have, had you spent a lot of time talking to uh, Governor Cuomo before the call that you had where he was threatening you, was there like regular conversations you had with him over the phone or was that like the first call you ever had with him? This was the first call. Phone oh, call I got it. Day. Okay. Yeah. I got it. I mean, obviously I spent time with them. I got it. Social yeah. events, even had dinner with them, with other lawmakers, et cetera. But yeah, he, he, this is the first time he made an effort to call me, followed by a number of phone calls on, on that Saturday, a total of eight times. Uh, to reach out to me. So this is really a reflection of the length that he was willing to go himself to try to control the situation in fear that there'll be more investigations into the nursing home scandal. Got it. So it's not like you guys had a relationship and an ongoing thing going on. And then, you know, you guys were talking regularly on one day, he's just threatening and telling you, if you do this, I'm going to fire you. I'm going to, you know, make sure I get rid of you. Okay. So uh, uh, at this point of the game, I think you're uh, based on what I'm hearing uh, when I'm hearing different folks talk about it. You guys are hoping he resigns rather than you go for impeachment. There, yeah, every day there are more. There's a growing, there are more growing calls from lawmakers for him to step down so we can refocus on. Do you think he will? Do you think he will? I don't think he will. But as we have more people calling for resignation, the next logical step. If he does not step down, is to go through the impeachment process. Uh, there's only been one impeachment in the city of New York, and the second attempt uh, to the former governor Elias Spitz led for him to resign because I don't think any governor wants to go through that process. Makes sense. Okay, so the other question I have for you is: Have you studied what happened with Detroit? Have you looked at what happened with Detroit historically, with uh, what led to Detroit's demise? In terms of the bankrupts, the city going bankrupt? and Yeah, I mean, in terms of being the richest city in the world per capita to not being the poorest city in America. Well, I know generally uh, what happened. Uh, but yeah, if you want to indulge in, in some of the history. Yeah, I'm just curious uh, because, yeah. you know, if we go back, uh, uh, you know, 1950s, you know, you're not talking uh, 200 years ago. 1950s is only 70 years ago. New uh, Detroit is the richest city in America. Their population went from 
200,000 to 1.8 million, and they had 200,000 manufacturing jobs where you're talking about, you know, Motown came from there, you're Michael Jackson, Marvin Gaye, the manager, the, the, those who represented them, Diana Ross, all these guys, and then Ford, Chrysler, you know, all of that. And then next thing you know, New York City started, the, uh, uh, Detroit started getting a lot of politicians where started saying, it's not fair. They're making too much money. Why are we giving them so many things? Why are we giving them so many tax benefits? And then they bullied these automakers out. And it went from having 200,000 uh, uh, manufacturing jobs all the way down to 20,000 manufacturing jobs, where jobs were lost in a manufacturing sector tremendously. But the municipality jobs increased, meaning more government employees for the city and fewer private jobs. And then today, you know, not only is Detroit known as the poorest city in America, but Detroit's also seen as the number one most dangerous city in America based on the amount of crimes that happened in 2019. The statistics are up there to see. And I bring this up because my favorite city in the world that I like to visit is the one you're in. I love New York City. There's something very magical and special about New York City. And not only the city, Ron, there's something different about doing business with people in New York. There's an attitude about them. There's a swagger about them. There is an element of, if I don't like you, I'll tell you. It's the only city where I would go as a 20-year-old, you know, when I got out of the army, 21-year-old. If I went to nightclubs, girls flirt with guys, not the other way around. It's like, it's if they like you, they come up to you. Everywhere else, you kind of have to like go but over there. Like, hey, I'm like, I've never seen nothing like this before. You know, it's a very different swagger the city has. But then we're seeing the similar trends happening today in New York City. I'm in Florida right now. I left California to go to Texas for obvious reasons. What was going on with California? And I was in Texas for a while, beautiful state, great state, great for business. They leave you alone. They allow you to do what you're doing. And I moved to Florida. But now in Florida, you're talking about Goldman Sachs. You're talking about all of these companies coming here, both from Silicon Valley and New York City. You're talking about $330 billion of wealth that left New York City. That's a lot of wealth that left New York City. Wall Street Journal just did an article saying the, those who left New York City, the jobs are not coming back. It's not like they're coming back to New York City. They left to other places. They left to other states to build their businesses. Do you think the way New York's going right now with so many new regulations and bullying businesses to leave, New York City could potentially be the next Detroit? First of all, I think there's, I think there's, you're conflating a couple of different things, in my opinion. Sure. Uh, I think the, the model of pitting states against each other and engaging a race to the bottom never results in a positive state. Even for Florida, I, I believe it's a short term. Can you unpack that? Can you unpack so, what? Yeah. Sure. So when, when cities and states are competing with taxpayers' money to trying to extrinsically motivate companies to come to their states, we engage in an economic uh, uh, cage war and, and we're competing uh, to go down rail race to the bottom uh, at the expense of taxpayers. Uh, Detroit is a, for me a model, uh, an example of when we are constantly trying to externally motivate big corporations, multinationals to come in and do business, it's not a sustainable approach. That's not they, a sustainable they, approach. They did not, they, to be clear, they did not stop subsidizing. They did continue to offer breaks over the years. They did, and, and, the, and the manufacturing companies did get massive bailouts by Washington 
in the subsequent years of when the companies couldn't compete uh, with some of the other manufacturing companies from Japan and on Germany, other global marketing companies that came into the space. How, so if we, if we are constantly pushing uh, the Federal Reserve to create new money and bailouts and lending mechanisms to bail out these corporations and push the states to engage in a race to the bottom, it's the public sector that will all ultimately be at be at harm. For New York State, it's different than Detroit. Detroit was never the number one. Uh, Michigan was never the number one state in terms of economic uh, power in America. New York has always been the number one state. One point right now we have a one point eight trillion state GDP. Uh, we have our, we are not suffering economically. We as a compared to other nations we are actually richer uh, than Finland, than Canada, as a state of New York. We, have, we still have wealth. Sure, Goldman wants to take one component of their sector to Florida to engage us you know, in a perpetual discussion about, well, what can we offer you to stay? What I'm arguing is that we, the more we engage in that conversation, we are only attracting partners who are extrinsically motivated to do business. Whereas we can be grooming companies who are intrinsically driven to be part of our growth. And that's what's been missing over the last 40 years. Now, in a pan, I know you're shaking your head, but- Yeah, the only reason is because, because of one thing. You know, you and I are both immigrants. We're the same age. We're a year apart. So we're pretty much, just, except you look like you're 15 years younger than me. I look like I'm 20 <laughs> years older than you. That's the only there. You look like you're 22. I look like I'm 52. But- uh, 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 you know, we came here for the F word, if you think about it. We came here for the, not the four letter F word, we came here for freedom, uh, free enterprise, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of, uh, you know, religion, freedom of uh, all of that stuff, right? And, you know, I think the one thing that's going away in New York is that incentive. It's like, it's incentive is almost seen as a bad thing for businesses and corporations. Don't you agree? Incentives to drive people to stay here is no just incentive like what is my incentive of wanting to build a business there should be an incentive like what is my incentive of wanting to uh create commerce or jobs sure. there should be an incentive yeah i mean I, I i appreciate this conversation because you and i uh came to this country around the same time uh, as immigrants and you you took a a very corporate approach and i've took a public sector approach sure um and the reason why I took the public sector approach, I was actually very aligned with some of the, uh, the the drivers that you've had as an entrepreneur. You know, I came here, my parents were small grocery store owners um, in, in upper Manhattan. They, it was like a five people, 24 seven Korean grocer, you know, a typical experience of so many Korean immigrants that came here. They shut that down in about 10 years since we arrived here. And they, they have to, they were in financial debt for years. Um, and when I go back to that very that pain, problem, that grocery store that used to yeah. exist. There was there used to be six mom and pop stores on that block. Right now, there's a Chase Bank and a giant retail supermarket. That's it, two stores. They replaced all the mom and pops. So my journey of where I am now is trying to connect the dots. Um, how do what do we do wrong? Where the true entrepreneurs, the true business owners that are adding value in our communities that we know that when we go spend that dollar in that grocery store, that dollar is being recirculated in our neighborhood. 
what where do we go wrong where we started rewarding the businesses that are extracting the dollar as much as our, of, of our community um the, the chain stores to read the, the big box stores amazon that's not adding value back to our community um but we made a conscious decision to do that we we, we stripped away antitrust laws starting in 1980 and un, un, unleashed private capital investments and growth without any more regulations and checks so we made a conscious decision that we in order to catch up to the rest of the world we need to we need private capital to be leveraged and to grow and to drive our innovation since 1980 but what happened is when you award monopolistic growth the smaller guys smaller businesses get hurt uh, we can't have big business and protect small business at the same time um, so now my goal as a policymaker is to try to come back and figure out how do we reprioritize the local economies? How do we make our economies more resilient? So every time when we have these downturns and, and, and economic uh, downturns, it's not just the big guys that are getting all the subsidies and all the tax credits, and they're actually getting wealthier doing these downturns, while all the smaller businesses are going bankrupt that hurt. So that's kind of the space that I'm in. Yeah. Uh, but I'm all, I'm all, but be you being a, a much in-depth business person and entrepreneur, I'm always open to, you know, people's advice, you know, and, and how do we, is there a balance? Do you think? Well, let's, let's go back. Let's do this. Let me, I mean, the yeah. biggest thing is, you, you know, one of the things I, I, the fact, what you just said to me right now, everything changed with my lens and you, you know, uh, 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 you know, when your parents lost that grocery store, how painful was it for your mom and dad and yourself? How, how difficult was it? Yeah. I mean, I, at a long, at a, at a very young age, I learned about debt and, how debt works and how psychologically damaging it is for immigrants dealing with financial stress. So yeah. was there a lot of pressure in the family? Like, did you see a lot of pressure from that? Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I still remember the day when we shut down that store. My dad and I, he, yeah, he brought me into the grocery store and he brought a sledgehammer, I had a bat and he just yeah, brought me in, shut down the store. And he was just like smashing all the goods and all the equipment. And I had no idea why we spent two hours doing that. And I realized much later on, there's nothing he could have done. Um, the landlord increased that rent, you know, the space by like 800%, expanded the back that we couldn't use. Uh, all the government agencies wouldn't do anything to help us. There was no one, no council member, no elected official would, would step in. We didn't know anyone. But for an immigrant, you know, when you had everything in line, you give up all you had. Um, from your homeland to, to come here to, as you know, to pursue that dream and you, to see it go away and you don't, you feel powerless and you feel voiceless. There's nothing you could do is pick up a slash hammer and start just smashing your own products. And that was, that left a very indelible mark. I bet. Um, in my mind. I bet, you know, it's, it's so crazy. Uh, I know you're a true believer. I know AOC is a true believer. A lot of politicians are not true believers. You know that, I know that, both on the left and the right. Some of them, it's more career, lawyer, I want to move up. And listen, there's nothing wrong with one in that kind of recognition. But I know and respect when someone is a true believer uh, uh, versus just, hey, saying what I know AOC is a true believer. I know you're a true believer. I think sometimes, you know, I have three kids and I'm one on the way. Sometimes I think yesterday we're out there, we're looking at a home and my realtor, this one lady starts panicking. So, like, oh my God, oh my gosh, please don't let them do that. Don't let them do that. Don't let them do that. I'm like, so my kids are, you know how my kids are. They're walking by the pool 
and then it's the intercoastal. So there's the stairs to go down to stand up on the jet ski. And if they fall, they're going to fall in the, in the, in the intercoastal and they're going down and, and Tim's like, no, 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 don't let them. I said, listen, if I tell them not to do it, they're going to do it. 10 to, so the moment we walk inside, they're going to be in there. They're doing it in front of me. It's okay. Let them do it. And I says, you know what? He says, I like the fact that you allow your kids to go, you know, and, you know, have a little bit of freedom with themselves. You know what I thought about? I thought about, I was raised in a, in an environment where it was so controlling, you know, how sometimes parents think they're doing the right thing for the kids, but then you don't see the negative side effects. What 50 years later, you know what I'm saying? And I think sometimes politicians do that. I really think AOC yourself, Sanders, I really think I'll give you the Ted Cruz. I'll, I really think even the people on the far right, the far, I really think they think they're doing the right thing. Okay. I really think they think they're doing the right thing. But sometimes, like, for example, when the whole minimum wage conversation came about, right, the $15 minimum wage. Okay. You know, uh, 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 I'm, I'm in the small business community, so I'm always dealing with small business owners. And I consult for them. I sit on boards and I run multiple companies and et cetera, et cetera. When the conversation about small business owners would come up with $15 minimum wage and I would talk to somebody that has 17 employees in, you know, Oklahoma City or, you know, small business, not a thousand employees, not 500, 17 employees, eight employees, nine employees, kind of like your dad. The $15 minimum wage may hate, may help the person making 10 bucks going to 15 bucks. Sure. But the $15 an hour minimum wage proposal that Bernie Sanders went after Bezos and Bezos said what? We have made a decision at Amazon. We are not going to be paying anybody less than $15 an hour. And everybody was like, wow, what a noble thing you did, Jeff Bezos. He can afford 15 bucks an hour. So Bernie Sanders trying to help the low-income families, you know, that are making less than 15, he indirectly helped Amazon. You know, that policy that I know he's trying to help, it helped Amazon. Then the small business owner that he was trying to help is like, dude, I can't pay 15 bucks an hour to a 16-year-old kid that's my best friend's daughter. He asked me to put a job and she's just doing bad. I can't pay her 15 bucks an hour. It's 50% more than what I pay her. My profits, I'm going out of business. So, you know, it goes back to the parenting part where, you know, half the time parenting is about not screwing, up, screwing the kids up too much. I think sometimes some of the policies from the left and far left socialist it's noble, but man, does it have long-term side effects? It's going to be painful. And the people that we're trying to help initially are the ones that end up paying a big price five, 10, 15 years later. What yeah, are your I, thoughts I, about that? I, I, I've, seen, I've seen some of your other clips about fixing um, your creative ways of addressing some of the tax injustice of people making $50,000 or less, or you know, should be taxed at 0%, and that would equate to people making $100,000 and go from there. So I think your intent, um, the way that I'm hearing it, is actually aligned with many of the left or the socialist uh, trying to get resolve a common problem, which is, like you said, New York, America, immigrants come here to make the impossible happen, right? We want to know that when we come here at, with nothing in our pockets, that if I work hard enough, if I'm an immigrant, I look at you, Patrick, and you are a successful businessman, but hey, one day, if I work hard enough, I can be wealthier than you, just be based on my pure hard work. Mm -hmm. I want to believe that, 
Mm-hmm. Right now, more immigrants waking up and realizing the system, no matter how hard I work now, I could never beat Patrick. See, I don't believe that. I see, but that's what I, I'm telling you. As as an elected official on the ground, he, feeling the tensions between communities, hearing everyday immigrants suffering, that's how what that's what they're saying. That's how they're giving up fundamental hope. And I'm saying that is why I think for you, when your position, uh, for people who are in finance, we all have a collective responsibility. Because if if the working class people start opting out, saying this game is rigged, it, like it is, it's not gonna, it's not rewarding hard work. Yeah. You know, it, it, no matter what I do, people who were born on third base continue to win. If we and, keep saying that, then you make it true. You know, Hitler said, uh, "If I tell a lie to myself long enough, I start believing it." Right? If you tell a lie enough times, people start. And by the way, I'm not calling anybody a liar and what a person to quote, you know, I'm not quoting anybody to make any kind of comparison. All I'm saying is, you know, uh, I grew up one day, my dad and I got into the biggest argument, Ron. And here's what the argument was. My parents got a divorce. Are your parents still together? Are your parents? Okay. My, and by the way, I had a lot of Korean friends growing up. I don't have one bad memory about Koreans. I will tell you, some of them are quiet, but they can fight. You know, <laughs> there was this one Korean was a quiet guy, but anytime there was a fight, he had this one kick. He destroyed big guys with his kick. So anytime I see Koreans, I try to have a civil conversation with them. I don't want to get that kick coming out of nowhere. But don't uh, worry, I'm not a violent person. <laughs> no, no. Obviously, I'm enjoying the conversation we're having. But yeah. you know, one day my dad and I were sitting down in my in uh, our apartment in Granada Hills. And him and my wife got him and my mom got a divorce. Ugly divorce. Wasn't pretty. They got divorced twice in 20 years. Not a pretty side. They should never gotten married. But thank God they did because I'm able to do the interview here with you. But he said, you know, all women are this. All women, all women, all women. And one day I just lost it. I said, Dad, stop it. Oh, my gosh. Stop telling me all women are this. I said, do you want me to believe that? I said, so let me ask you a question. Do you want me to believe that? And I get married and I also get a divorce. And I, do you want me to do that? And I said, then stop telling your son that over and over again. He's starting to believe it. I don't want to hear it anymore. And it was a heated moment between father and son. And we've had a lot of good conversations together. He didn't talk to me that night. Next night I come and we're sitting there watching the Laker game. He sits there, he says, I just want you to know you're right. I said, what do you mean? He says, all women are not like that. I just had a bad experience. And I don't want you to believe it. I said, I appreciate that, Dad. I just, I just don't think we need to say that kind of stuff over and over again because God forbid my kid starts believing it. I don't want them to believe it. So I think if we say, you know, people, immigrants are feeling like right now the opportunity is not there. If a thousand people with power like you, you got power. I mean, you're not a, you're somebody that in the future could be the governor in the state you're a part of. You're a rising star that's coming up. You're not just anybody. You got, you got a very big upside in your career, right? Very big upside in your career. If we don't speak about the dreaming part and and dreaming, I don't mean social. Look at Obama was a Democrat. He got up and he said, he talked about the dream. You know, this weekend I was listening to MLK's speech was about dream. Reagan was dream. This is not about Republican, Democrat. It's about believing that the dream is still possible. I don't know if I believe that thing is gone or not uh, uh, where it was before. Even Buffett yesterday, you know, last week said, America is still the greatest place, the greatest country to live in, you know, and I think if we get away from people dreaming again, we have bigger problems coming up in the future. Right. I'm saying 
my job as a lawmaker is not to be the salesperson to sell the dream, is to tell the truth about policies that are failing the dream. And not enough politicians have done that part. We have plenty, and, and Pastor, you can get so many other politicians on your show. They can talk about the American dream and feeling and selling the hope. Um, I'm, I'm not part of that cloth and, and I'm not gonna apologize uh, for telling what I see on the ground because I do care about the dream. My parents sacrificed everything to come here believing in that dream. I want to revive that dream. So, but if I can't be honest, I'm not saying come, come and destroy every corporate Wall Street. I'm not, I have plenty of friends and I, I, I was one step away from joining Goldman. You know, it's the summer analyst, the dream summer analyst job. I played football. I was in the right fraternity. I did everything that I had to do to end up in Wall Street. And I have plenty of friends who went to Lehman and, and, and Goldman. So that's my background. So, you know, I'm surrounded by them. And I have these kind of discussions with them around dinner tables all the time. Um, but my role is to make sure that the public sector is in a better place to revive that dream. We need to invest in base, very basic things, education, healthcare, housing, and, and to make sure that our basic human needs, people's human needs are met. Instead of saying, here's an opportunity, here's a door to opportunity. If you can't get there, that's on you. Uh, forget the lack of housing, forget the horrible conditions, social conditions you're living in. We're, not, we're no longer going to invest in that. It's up to you to figure out how to get to that door. And many people are not getting to that door. And while I'm, many politicians are saying, I'm giving you that door in front of you. Um, so it's up to you to get there. Yeah, I mean, I wanna buy that, man. I really wanna buy it. We got 10 minutes left here and I'll, I'll wrap it up with this topic and then we'll finish it off is Amazon. Okay, Amazon was coming to New York and they were gonna get, uh, you know, the numbers better than I do, $3 billion over a 10 year period, you know, whatever the timeline was and in return, the investment would have brought back roughly $27 billion into the city and Bezos went back and forth. I think you were the first public, I think you were the first to come out and kind of a, a not support the movement. As a matter of fact, I think you even campaigned behind that. I, it, it may have been, there was a name uh, behind the campaign and, uh, 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 people over corporate, people over corporate, something like that. I don't know what the campaign was about. And then AOC came out and was pretty vocal about it. And then de Blasio said yes. And then he changes my Cuomo's like, what are we doing? So looking back now, do you think it was a right move to push Amazon out instead of bringing those 25,000 jobs at an average salary of 150 into New York? If you look at the history of these mega deals, uh, including Elon Tusk and Buffalo, uh, to Minnesota, um, I forgot the name of the Taiwanese company that cut that deal. And if you go back and audit what they deliver, they never deliver and keep up the promises. And even without the subsidies, Amazon already did bring close to 7,000, 8,000 jobs without any subsidies uh, after that year into Manhattan and other parts of the world. And they will continue to bring jobs because their main competitors are already here, Microsoft, Google, um, finance, as you know, the financial sector, as they're shrinking a little by little every year, the tech sector is growing in New York um, on its own. But without Do you like that? Do you think that's good? Do you like that? I think, I think as the tech sector is growing, uh, we also need to make space for local entrepreneurs. I know that we are putting money behind some of the state universities to create hubs, to make sure that some of the local 
uh, entrepreneur types that are doing positive work uh, for local economies. They're trying to create space for them. So we, so we are striking, I believe, a right balance right now. Um, but I have nothing against if, if Google wants to bring their jobs here, if they're not asking for a dime and they want to invest their time and effort and trying to recruit people in New York, that's a good thing. Um, we have the talent. We have people that are still here, young tech entrepreneurs who are coding, who are coders. Um, and so the companies tend to go where the talent is. So I know there's still intrinsic value, but imagine if we have a subway, imagine if we have the museums, imagine if we have all the, all the intangible things that people are drawn to. That is the public sector value that we can create to draw the people and the talent and the companies will naturally follow, which Amazon is already doing. Um, as far as like other parts of New York, like Buffalo, we, and when we analyze numbers, we spend about 1.25 million dollars per one job in in in, in elon musk's Tesla. project in upstate new york yeah. that is beyond crazy uh we should put a cap uh if we want to continue in economic development projects we should have a cap on how much money we want to spend per one job to make safeguard companies like amazon from extracting tax you know credits and taxpayers money and also have clawback clauses in meaning in five years, six years, if you're not miss, if you're not meeting the goals, we will claw back uh, some of those um, credits and tax breaks. So that's a level of accountability we should put into every type of de mega deal, which the governor and the mayor did not have. Uh, this was just a handshake and saying, hey, you know, you get this if you come here, and that's not good enough. In a, in a perfect world, would you like to see the amount of billionaires in New York City decrease? In a perfect world, I don't think we should have uh, that much concentrated wealth. Um, we, you know, and New York, as we mentioned before, is still the wealthiest state, but we are the worst in upper social mobility at the same time. Um, that's a fact. That's a statistical fact. Meaning, like you know, you and I disagree on this, but people are, no matter how hard they're working right now, there is no upper social mobility, um, and that is a direct result of the extreme concentration of power and wealth at the top. Um, so, you know, moving forward, there is a duty, especially at a time in a crisis. There's never been at a time in American history when we had a social health economic crisis, when the people at the very top, the 1%, the 5%, didn't pay their fair share uh, to take care of the rest of society. The top 1 to 5% have made much more money during this period all the rest of us are suffering. And at minimum, what we're asking uh, for our constituents is to share the burden together. So the wealth tax of Elizabeth Warren is something you support, you, you, you like the wealth tax. We have our own version of a New York wealth tax, uh, which goes beyond property tax, because right now our tax codes are entirely based on property, real property, but it's, it's, it's been very difficult to codify and capture real wealth in the forms of stock transfers and a number of different intangible things, capital assets that why IRS traditionally had a hard time tracking. But in the last 10 years, they've added more mechanisms to keep track of inflation and how those capital assets are uh, drawing income. People are drawing income from those capital assets in a much more accurate way. So I believe if there's a will, we can um, look at what real wealth tax looks like versus just relying on real property tax, uh, which 
at that point, that means we are relying more on the middle, upper middle class Americans to carry the burden of a wealth tax if we just rely on real property tax. So I'll give you the final, uh, you know, awards here. Tell us how you envision the future. Does the future look bright or does the future look scary? Uh, those of, I, I, the future does look bright. Okay, good. There you go. I, I, got I believe, I believe we got there's, optimism. there's million millionaires in New York, you know, also trying to get tax justice there. You know, you were talking about, you're, I mean, you are a very wealthy businessman and you're talking about not taxing people $50,000. I mean, that is insane. Like for you to like come to that. Conclusion. You think that's a bad idea? No, no, I'm saying that's a, no, that's, that's, I'm, that's, that's amazing. You, you know why I like that idea? Here's why I like that idea. Stuff like that. Yeah. You know why I like that idea? I like that idea because, because the burden doesn't go on the small business owner and the burden doesn't go on the employee. Why are we taxing people less than 50K anyways? Just let them keep 100%. Right. And then right. we can put a flat tax above it. I know you would want progressive, but right. we could put a flat tax above it. Right. But uh, allow more people to keep it. But go ahead, f keep going. Your your yeah. final thoughts about the future and how you yeah. see things so, working out. So I think the more we have these discussions and and respectful discussions, obviously you and I differ difference on the policies, but I believe we can draw come to a consensus because capitalists and socialists, um, and Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, we all have the same goal, which is to reward hard work. That's all we want. Like we want people to feel understand that if they put in the time and effort that they have upper mobility. It's a very simple formula what the American dream is. And we can, if we all put our heads together, we can get to that better place. As long as we don't have authoritative demagogic politicians like Trump and Cuomo, they come from the same cloth. You know, they, they're about control and they're about abusive, abusing power. As long as we have collaborative uh, politicians who can see the world as a win-win world doesn't have to be a win-lose. You're in the business of win-lose. I understand that. But public servants should create a world of win-win uh, where it's not winner-take-all economics. Um, and, and as long as we can find that balance, I do feel very optimistic. We can get to a better place very soon. You know, it's crazy. The most money I ever made is deals that I did that were win-win. Most money I ever made were deals that I did were win-win. At the beginning, the 20-year-old Pat would be win-lose. Yeah. But as I matured and I made a ton of mistakes as an amateur, I realized the biggest money-making opportunities are when there's a win-win because more people want to see you win as well. So essentially, your investment is also protected. More than anything else, Ron, I so enjoyed this conversation because, uh, you know, opposing philosophies, some areas we have, we have similar philosophies in, but uh, we share one thing. We believe in America. We believe America is a great country and we want to make it better and i appreciate you coming on and being a guest on valuetainment thank you so much patrick take you care. got it buddy take care so two similar stories here ron comes here from korea i come here from iran we're about the same age one year apart my kids uh, sometimes interrupt me on a zoom so does his you know uh, he goes into politics i go into business later on we believe in a different dream a different american dream he thinks currently times are challenging where somebody doesn't believe that it's possible for one day somebody to become extremely successful. I believe, what do you think? Comment below. I want to hear your thoughts. And I did a, a similar type of a conversation and banter I had with Richard Wolf, professor. He is uh, probably, Forbes says, the most respected, reputable socialist professor in America. And we had a good debate together about socialism and capitalism. If you've never watched it, click over you to watch it. With that being said, have a great day, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.